Hi, it's Brendan here. I just wanted to tell you about how you can help Spiked. Spiked is free. We have no paywall, no subscription model. We want everyone to be able to read our commentary and listen to our podcasts. And that's why we will be staying free. And you can help us to do that by making a donation. To those of you who already donate, thank you very much. We really couldn't do what we do without you. To those thinking of donating, how about doing it today? The best kind of donation is a regular monthly one. Donating as little as £5 a month can make a huge difference to what we do. So if you'd like to join the band of people who help to keep Spiked free and thriving, just go to www.spiked-online.com and hit the big red donate button. And now, on with the show. Offense is an ego-based response. How dare you? You've hurt me. You've offended me. You've made me feel bad. Reason would require not offense, but disagreement. You've not persuaded me. You're wrong. I, I disagree with, I abhor, I repudiate your prejudice, your your racism. I, I, I find it to be sinful. I think if, if we're going to engage in the robust business of democracy, we, we have to meet hateful arguments with loving ones and uh, evil arguments with good ones. Hello and welcome to The Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill. This is a podcast in which an esteemed guest joins me to talk about the big ideas, the bad ideas, the problems and the controversies of life in the early 21st century. In this episode, I am delighted to be joined by Jeffrey Rosen. Jeffrey is an American academic lawyer and commentator. He has written widely on legal issues and on constitutional controversies. He wrote about the law for New Republic magazine for many years before becoming a contributing editor at The Atlantic. He has also written for The New Yorker and The New York Times magazine. His books include The Most Democratic Branch, How the Courts Serve America, The Supreme Court, The Personalities and Rivalries That Defined America, and Louis D. Brandeis, American Prophet. Since 2013, Jeffrey has been the president and CEO of the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia, a brilliant non-profit institution devoted to the United States Constitution, where I've had the pleasure of speaking. He is also host of the center's weekly podcast, We the People, which I highly recommend. So Jeffrey, the first thing I want to ask you is about the current moment, the moment we find ourselves in where Billions of people have spent a lot of the past few months under lockdown. There have been growing restrictions on what people can say on certain social media sites, particularly YouTube, which has clamped down on some forms of commentary or conspiracy theorizing about COVID-19. And there have been numerous clashes over this state of affairs. There have been marches in the US against lockdown. There have been marches in the UK, often involving strange people and also liberal people. So I just wonder if you could give us your overview of how you think liberty will come out of this period and whether you think it has taken a bit of a beating or whether you think the constitutional measures in the US in particular were acceptable for a period of time. It's been remarkable to learn in the US how broad government emergency powers are in times of 
COVID, courts essentially have held that there are few restrictions on the ability of federal or state governments to impose lockdowns, at least for brief periods of time. A couple of exceptions, some churches have sued and argued that their religious liberty has been infringed because they deserve special treatment and shouldn't be treated like every other organization. But those have been the exceptions. So what we've seen is a pattern throughout U.S. history that in times of public health emergencies, and there have just been a handful over the course of American history, essentially the state governments in particular and the, and the federal governments as well have much broader powers than they would have otherwise. The response to that in the U.S. has almost split down culture war lines. So, you know, there are elements in the pro-Trump camp who have been quite vocal in their opposition to the lockdown measures. And there have been elements in in the more democratic camp who have almost made a virtue of supporting the lockdown or even arguing that it should go on for longer or go on further. One thing that Joe Biden is pushing in, in the run-up to the election is mandatory mask wearing, for example. And he he often wears a mask and it sometimes seems to be as much a, a performance of his fealty to a particular political viewpoint as much as it is a, a mechanism for safety, for protection. Does that kind of thing worry you, the way in which all sorts of issues, e even something as important as freedom and, and the question of how to balance freedom with a health crisis, does it worry you that so many issues, even ones like that, seem to fold themselves into these pre-existing culture war lines? Yes, it is distressing and worrying that issues as basic as uh, how to balance public health against free speech have become uh, polarized. There are hard questions. Reasonable judges and citizens can disagree about precisely what the scope of lockdowns should be. But the idea of wearing masks or not wearing masks or being for or against lockdowns in all circumstances, it shouldn't be a political issue. And it's too bad that it has become one. One thing I wanted to explore with you in a bit more detail, because this is something you've written about extensively, is the role of big tech or social media companies in relation to public discussion and what we are allowed and not allowed to say in the public sphere or in the online sphere. And there have been numerous examples over the past few months where YouTube, for example, has not only removed things which are clearly conspiratorial in relation to COVID-19 or clearly wrong, but also examples of sceptical doctors saying, listen, the virus is not as bad as we first thought, or, you know, the lockdown was not the right response. And, you know, what we would consider, I think, to be in the bounds of legitimate public discussion and legitimate public disagreement. So there seems to have been an element of overreach in how some social media companies have approached the discussion of COVID-19. Have you noticed that? And do you think that's in some ways a continuation of the role that some of these uh, tech overlords had started to play over the past few years? Yes, there has been a notable and worrying shift about the response of the tech platforms to free speech controversies during COVID. Five years ago, there was a broad, if embattled, effort to essentially embrace something like American free speech standards, with some exceptions, and, and to put the finger on the side of free speech when it came to controversies involving hate speech. The Trump 
presidency changed that and the platforms began to be more active in making judgment of facts and in either fact-checking or removing statements by the president and others that they felt were false. And then in the COVID crisis, that extended to removing or questioning opinions regarding COVID on the grounds that they were factually questionable. This is a worrying trend because once the platforms put themselves in the business of deciding what's true and what's false, they're serving as editors and they have made clear that they are not going to be bound by traditional First Amendment standards, but instead will balance values of free speech against other values. And that's not a good path to set down. Yeah. And you've written before about how mega companies like Google and Facebook and others have an extraordinary amount of control or influence over our privacy and our freedom of speech. And you said that they have, in many ways, greater power in those areas of life than any king, president or Supreme Court justice. Could you just outline how you conceive of that power and how you see it being exercised at the moment? Well, the power is plenary. The, the platforms can each set their own free speech standards. And in that sense, they're governments that are administering internally adopted constitutions. And at the dawn of the tech era, in the midst of the early 21st century, the platforms had basically tried to embrace a version of traditional free speech standards. And just to remind listeners, the American First Amendment standard is extraordinarily speech protective. It says that speech cannot be banned or restricted unless it's intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. It's a standard that comes from a Supreme Court case called the Brandenburg case in the 1960s. It was articulated by Justices Holmes and Brandeis in the 20s, and it's more protective than almost any other country in the world, certainly including Britain. But that is no longer the standard that the companies are tending to apply. Each of the platforms has adopted versions of its own hate speech policies, which forbid speech that offends or degrades on the basis of protected status defined in different ways, but generally allowing the suppression of hate speech that degrades or offends certain groups. And the exceptions are only growing as the consumer pressures to remove hate speech continue, and also legitimate concerns about the spread of false facts and fake news grow. So we're living in a world where these companies are unrestricted by legal norms, since they're private companies, they're not bound by the Constitution, and they're extremely responsive to consumer norms, which means that all of the pressures are going to be in favor of restriction rather than freedom. Yes, absolutely. And one of the things that strikes me is that many people, I won't say all people, of course, but many people seem willing to trust their privacy and their their liberty or, or, or their right to say certain things. They seem quite willing to entrust that to these kinds of corporations and quite willing to go along with you know the submission of your, your private life to these platforms and a willingness to cajole the platforms into controlling more and more areas of speech through using consumer pressure and so on in a way that I think people in the past would have been quite skeptical of allowing government, for example, to have so much oversight in relation to our private lives and our right to express ourselves. What do you think explains that shift, the, the way in which people who might still be skeptical of 
governmental oversight of what we're allowed to say. He's seen prepared to accept it when it comes from Silicon Valley and largely unaccountable corporations? It's an important question. And perhaps the answer has something to do that online people think of themselves more as consumers or users than citizens. They favor efficiency. They're glad of the ease of use of Facebook and Twitter and Google and Amazon and everything else. And as long as their needs are being met, they're less likely to be concerned about the needs and rights of minorities and of of constitutional principles. Also, users feel empowered to set the standards themselves. YouTube and Google and Facebook enforce their hate speech policies based on user complaints. Individuals write in and say they're offended by something. So in that sense, maybe people feel that they're participating in the exercise of speech norms that are not always based on freedom. That's that's just a guess. We're living in a new world. It's an important question to continue to explore. But it's a, it's a sign of the times, isn't it, that Facebook recently announced the equivalent of a Supreme Court for Facebook, where they've assembled a group of academics and heads of NGOs to make decisions about what should stay up and what could come down, or at least make recommendations. It's a sign that Facebook itself is uncomfortable with the power that it's exercising, not so much because it minds exercising power, but because it's gotten political heat for the decisions it's made. And I think it wants some cover. It it wants some independent authorities to make the decisions for it. We'll see, as as they say, how, how this new body operates. Certainly the people who are on it are thoughtful, responsible people, but Creating a a Supreme Court for Facebook raises the same challenges as creating judicial bodies do in in the constitutional space. What's the degree of independence, transparency, and accountability? Will will the Facebook judges justify their decisions with written opinions? What, What, if anything, is the ground for appeal? And what pressures do these judges have to ensure independence? After all, they have professional norms. They also face will face consumer criticism if they allow up unpopular stuff. And an unaccountable Supreme Court is just as troubling as an unaccountable platform. Another sign of the great challenges we face in this new world. One of the things that frightens me most about the creeping role of social media censorship or, or the way in which these corporations, which have almost the monopoly over different forms of speech on the internet, the way in which it's almost censorship by robot. So it's the algorithm approach. And no doubt that is because they receive millions upon millions of posts every week and millions of complaints too, I'm sure, or requests to take things down. And very often things are done in an algorithmic way. My Instagram page, for example, has been taken down twice. And I think that's largely down to an algorithm and probably because of a word I said or an idea I expressed, which went through the computer and set off an alarm or whatever happens in these places, which makes it even more sinister in some ways, or certainly more dystopian, because it's not even a human being exercising moral judgment and saying, you can't say that, which was bad enough when that happens. But It's a machine-like approach to something as complex and important as human speech and human engagement. Yes, absolutely. As as you say, censorship by algorithm is dystopian. You understand the impulse. The the volume is so big, billions of pieces of content exchanged uh, every week or every day or whatever it is on, on Facebook. 
and not a lot of human beings able to make discretionary decisions. But hard questions involving the, the balance between speech and other values require discretion and cannot possibly be made algorithmically. And therefore, the move toward algorithm, which again, is obviously a business imperative, uh, it takes the heat off Facebook to say the machine made me do it, um, is a troubling move. On that point you raised there about the complexity, the human complexity of balancing freedom of speech, which most people agree is an important value against other values. It strikes me that one of the most interesting things about internet censorship or, or the, the, the creeping controls being introduced in social media is the juxtaposition between your right to say something and other people's right to feel dignity. And that runs through numerous hate speech laws in Europe as well, and campus speech codes and other forms of modern censorship. There's often this notion that if your speech encroaches upon another person's dignity or makes them feel undervalued or at risk is the modern phrase or, or in some way endangered or erased, then your speech becomes problematic. And certainly on social media platforms, it can mean that you are banned and you are suddenly taken off an incredibly important sphere for contemporary public discussion. How do you see that balancing of dignity and freedom of speech? My view, of course, is that freedom of speech ought to override dignity all the time, which is not to demean people's desire to be looked upon in a dignified way. But do you think dignity is the new moral majority idea, which is being wielded against freedom of speech? Yes, we're, we're seeing a sea change in the understanding of how to strike the balance between free speech and dignity. The classic American position had been that speech trumps all. Dignity is not a value protected by the U.S. Constitution, unlike in Germany, for example, which does protect dignity as a constitutional value. And the, the, the position of, of Brandeis and Holmes had been, unless the speech is intended to and likely to cause imminent lawless action or violence or serious wrongdoing, then speech has to trump everything else. But the world is shifting. Now, here, the U.S. has much to learn from Europe in particular, and, and something from the UK as well, where dignity has been part of the free speech debate for much longer than it has in the US. What courts will do remains to be seen. Currently on the US Supreme Court, there's nearly a unanimous support for the classic position. It transcends liberal and conservative divides, nearly all nine justices, with the possible exception of Justice Samuel Alito, a conservative who is more favorable to dignitary arguments. All of the other eight liberals and conservatives favor Brandeis and Holmes. And the court just next term agreed to hear arguments about whether a student can sue officials for violating his First Amendment rights when they enforced a speech code that's become common around the country. So it may be the first time the U.S. Supreme Court in recent years has confronted a hate speech question. It involves so-called free expression areas, these tiny little, uh, it was a patio and a sidewalk, which amounted to zero 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 one five percent of the campus. And the question is, and it was only available on weekdays and only for four hours on most days, two on Fridays. <laughs> I'm reading from the New York Times account. It's really something. And he stands on his stool in August 2016, and he's in the free speech zone. And he actually reserved the space and he submitted the request in advance in three business days. He said, all I wanted to do is share with other students the faith that changed my life 
but a, a campus police officer told him that public speaking in a free speech zone amounted to disorderly conduct. So, <laughs> so, so he sues. It's a great case. And he says this violates the First Amendment. And then initially, I'll just keep reading from the article because it's instructive. The state's attorney general said, plaintiff's open air speaking arguably rose to the level of fighting words. Plaintiff used contentious religious language that when directed to a crowd has a tendency to incite hostility that would not have flown in court because obviously it wasn't. Fighting words have to be intended to and likely to cause imminent violence. It was such an implausible defense that the college soon abandoned this policy, understanding it was going to lose. And there is a revised policy saying that people can speak anywhere on campus without having to get a permit. So the question is whether the case is moot, in other words, and, and whether it's still alive enough for the court to review it, or whether the fact that the government changed its policies made, made the case go away. If the case goes ahead, and it's not clear it will because of the college's effort to avoid review, I'll just go out on a limb and say the college will lose big. L liberal and conservative justices would agree that that's not going to fly. But lower court judges, I don't know. And younger people, of course, have a very different understanding of the balance between free speech and dignity. And when they become judges in a generation or two, the balance could shift. So there's nothing static about constitutional understandings. The speech is only, it's a pretty recent development. It's only since the 1960s that this tradition really crystallized and got repeated support in the U.S. Supreme Court. That's what makes this such a this such an important time. I think the dignity idea is something really worth keeping an eye on. And whenever I speak in America or with American friends of mine, I always feel a bit like a canary in the coal mine telling them about what's happening in, in the UK and, and in other European countries too. I mean, in the UK, for example, echoing the example you just gave, there have been instances where Christian preachers have been arrested and in some cases temporarily taken to a jail cell because their speech, if they quote from, for example, a homophobic passage of the Bible, it's judged to be offensive, damaging to passers-by dignity, which is what some passers-by will actually say, and therefore the speech is disallowed and you cannot say that publicly. There have also been examples of people who are sceptical of transgenderism being spoken to by the police and told that their views on transgenderism are wrong. And the right view to hold is that it's perfectly possible and perfectly fine for a man to become a woman and a woman to become a man and really indicating that there's no space for disagreement on these issues because if you disagree, you will harm the dignity or, or the sense of safety of members of the trans community. So it's an argument that's been growing for a long time in Europe. It's been taking hold in America for a while. And I, I wanted to ask you in relation to that, to what extent is social media merely reflecting pre-existing culture? I mean, is it the case that these internet giants have molded themselves around ideas that existed prior to their existence, uh, ideas which have been gathering pace on American campuses for a long time and among some American progressives in relation to diversity and dignity being more important values than the individual's right to freedom of expression? Is there a danger that um, sometimes when we criticize these 
corporations were engaging in technological determinism, whereas the prior problem is that they are merely reflecting in, in a very huge, powerful way, ideas that had been taking hold for quite a long period of time. Yes, that's extremely well put. And the companies are literally reflecting pre-existing values in the sense that it's user complaints that trigger efforts to take down speech. And it's also the platforms themselves that crystallize public opinion ruled by Twitter and Twitter mobs and echo chambers are what are forming our new norms. And those who transgress popular understandings of dignity are likely to suffer the consequences in terms of Twitter and other platforms. So we, we certainly should not blame or attribute to the platforms uh, creating the norms. They're absolutely reflecting them, but they're reflecting them both in their enforcement policies and they're literally reflecting them on the platforms themselves. The norms themselves are being formed and made and expressed online and, and then enforced by the companies. It's it's a version of the tyranny of public opinion that, that John Stuart Mill warned about as being even greater in its likelihood to suppress free speech, individuality, eccentricity, and creativity than government coercion. And now the force of public opinion is being reflected online, and we're seeing the consequences. On that point about the tyranny of opinion, and I've always thought that John Stuart Mill in On Liberty outlined incredibly well how it's not just the boot of the government on your throat that is a problem when it comes to free expression. It's often, you know, a culture of wanting to say the right thing or feeling pressured to say the right thing or knowing that there will be certain social consequences if you don't say the right thing. And in relation to the current moment, I've had this discussion with many American friends of mine, and it usually ends up in an argument. But I wonder if the current moment might tell us something about the limitations of constitutionalism when it comes to the protection of freedom of speech. Now, you are one of America's key guardians of the constitution Hardly. and <laughs> not, not at and, all <laughs> but i but i wonder if you know in the uk we often look upon the first amendment with extraordinary envy that you have something which forbids government from interfering with freedom of speech and freedom of the press and freedom of religion and most european countries don't have that and we're very envious of america for having it but at the same time is there a danger that an over-reliance on constitutional means to protect freedom of speech takes one's eye off the ball when it comes to these new informal or private assaults on freedom of speech, which seem to be growing in power in recent decades. Yes, there is that danger. And I, I don't think we're going to argue about this. There's no question that the overwhelming power of public opinion and the platforms and social opprobrium to inhibit speech is far greater than the power of the government. The number of public universities is dwarfed by the private ones. And in, in any event, speech nowadays takes place on phones and online. It doesn't play, take place in free speech zones on public property. So, of course, the place where most of us speak and think is online and to the degree that that is regulated by norms rather than the First Amendment, then the First Amendment will not protect anyone. On the other hand, to put in a word for the value of constitutionalism, the First Amendment provides a shining beacon of principle to which we can appeal. There, there are a few other places in this very fraught and heated time 
aside from the shared American commitment to the Constitution that you can invoke as a unifying force, or just to put it more simply, at a time when free speech values are under tremendous assault, it is helpful to be able to say, look to this shining free speech tradition. Yes, you platforms are not required to obey it legally, but you should choose to do so morally because it's the right principle. It strikes the right balance. It's resulted in the greatest explosion of freedom and creativity and political liberty in world history. So that, that's why it's very, very important to, to teach people about, about, about this tradition and to tell the stories that led to it and, and to talk about how it was fought for and how it's fragile and, and so forth. But, but in the end, if people are not persuaded, as you say, then we're doomed. That's very well put. It, it's like the old saying, if, if love for freedom doesn't live in people's hearts and minds, then no law will be able to protect it. Yes. But I think seeing the First Amendment as something that can be appealed to as part of the struggle for freedom of speech in all areas of life makes perfect sense. You mentioned earlier, and this is something that has surprised and possibly even shocked quite a few people here in the UK and possibly in the US too. You mentioned the way in which social media sites, particularly Twitter, have taken now to hiding or correcting tweets from President Trump. Now, we don't necessarily need to get into a huge discussion about President Trump. I'm guessing both of us are highly skeptical about President Trump and the role he's played in American public life. But that strikes me as being quite extraordinary that someone elected by 60 plus million people in a democratic country can have his words either hidden behind a, a safe space screen or corrected by people whose names we don't know in Silicon Valley. Do you think that represents Silicon Valley pressing into the political realm itself? And couldn't that have quite bad consequences for democracy and democratic engagement? Yes, it could. As you know, I know work at the National Constitution Center, this wonderful educational institution that's required to be nonpartisan. And we take that nonpartisan mandate very seriously. And I love to recite the mantra that Congress gave us when it created the Constitution Center to disseminate information about the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. So there's a real danger that the platforms, once they take it upon themselves to decide which politicians are speaking truly and which aren't, will not be nonpartisan platforms. They won't be public fora, open to all, that promote debate that is robust, wide open, and uninhibited, as Justice Brennan said in the New York Times case, but instead will be picking and choosing based on who's popular. It's a very fraught road to go down. It's why Thomas Jefferson was so keen on the line between fact and opinion and insisting on untrammeled expression of opinion as core to freedom of conscience, the idea of the natural right of conscience as coming from God or nature, not from government, and the idea that our opinions are the product of external sensations operating on our reason, producing involuntary thoughts that present themselves to our reasoning minds is why Jefferson thought the rights of conscience are unalienable. They can't, I can't give to you my power to reason or to form opinions because I can't entirely control them myself. They're the product of my experiences and my, my reason. So once the platforms delve into this extraordinarily tenuous line between fact and opinion, 
they run the risk of in intruding on our freedom of opinion. And I, I don't see how they could return. I also echo your comments on the National Constitution Center, which everyone should visit. It is really is a, a remarkable place all about liberty and the importance of it. In relation to freedom of opinion and what was previously seen by earlier generations as either a God-given or natural right to be the master of your own conscience and to express your views publicly, you mentioned earlier that there, there's very possibly a generational shift taking place. So currently the justices in the Supreme Court seem to be, you know, pretty uniform in their belief that freedom of speech is is an important value or the First Amendment is an important amendment. But there are younger activists, there are younger people, there are younger politicians who might not share that view. And as they grow in stature and influence, that could have problematic consequences for the United States. And so in relation to that, one thing I think that is quite striking is cancel culture. And I wanted to ask you what you think about cancel culture. And obviously, there was the Harper's Magazine letter and one of the things I found most striking about the response to that letter was this notion among, I guess you might call them woke activists or millennial activists, which is not to say that all millennials are like this, but there was a, a response which was effectively to say, well, the signatories to the Harper's letter are all bitter boomers, old people who are used to publishing their ideas and never being criticized. And now they just can't handle the fact that young people won't stand for their nonsense anymore. How worried are you about a possible decline of respect for freedom generationally so that there is now a new generation who, who don't seem to have the same commitment to this ideal as older generations might have done? Paul Berman has a piece in Tablet magazine recently trying to put this in historical perspective. The larger question, he begins lurking behind the debate over cancel culture, is the one about liberalism. What is liberalism anyway? And he says that cancel culture is a new name, but it has a history which goes back to the 1920s when the American Communist Party was founded in the inebriating belief that Marxism was the last and irrefutable word in social science. And he talks about efforts to enforce orthodoxy on the left in those days, which was resisted by civil libertarian liberals who insisted on the importance of freedom. One striking sign of the Harper's debate is that it, there are heavy costs to taking the civil libertarian position today, namely in the force of fierce criticism online. And that perhaps is what's different from the 1920s. But Berman is right that we've been here before. One thing that I think is underappreciated by the cancel generation or the cancel movement is just how dangerous and stifling orthodoxy can be for society at large. So it, it goes beyond the question of an individual's right to express him or herself as incredibly important as that is, as part of being an autonomous individual, there ought to be the right to think for yourself and speak for yourself. But also when orthodoxies are enforced and when we are told there are certain ideas we cannot entertain and certainly cannot express, it has negative consequences across society in the sense that intellectual experimentation becomes downgraded, the possibility of coming up with new ideas, the possibility of challenging problematic institutions and ideas that currently exist, all of that stuff becomes weakened. It always brings to mind George Bernard Shaw's line, which is that all great truths begin as blasphemies. And 
I think when you shrink the space for blasphemy, it shrinks the possibility of discovering new truths. What's your experience in relation to the National Constitution Centre and your, in relation to your engagement with audiences and, and young people? What's your experience of convincing them of the not only the individual value of freedom of speech, but also the social value? Well, the, it's been heartening to be part of this great educational mission. It's a crusade at the Constitution Center. And for your great listeners, I'll just plug our website, the Interactive Constitution, which is a cornucopia. It's just this extraordinary collection of the greatest liberal and conservative thinkers writing about every clause of the Constitution with blogs and podcasts and videos and essays. And it's a living embodiment of the value of uninhibited, robust public debate, recognizing that there are good arguments on both sides of most contested constitutional questions. There's so much to learn historically. To learn from this platform is to repudiate orthodoxy, because the idea that one could be confident about any single right answer to any of these extraordinarily difficult questions is is refuted by the diversity of, of arguments that are collected on the interactive constitution. So I'm, I'm actually an optimist based on my experience. I'm, I'm very heartened by the fact that all of the many audiences we engage with from middle school kids, you know, these are uh, eight to 80 is the age at which people can engage in constitutional debates. But it requires a few things. First, a willingness to listen respectfully to arguments on the other side, to approach issues with an open mind, to separate your political from your constitutional views. In other words, ask not what you think the government should do in every circumstance, but what you think the Constitution allows or forbids it to do. And that by itself is to repudiate orthodoxy or to assume you know the answer in advance, because you might find that you think a certain policy is good, but the Constitution prohibits it, like forbidding hate speech, or you might think the, the policy is bad, but the Constitution allows it. You need time. That's one thing that is important. Time, if, as Brandeis said in that beautiful Whitney concurrence, if there be time enough for deliberation, the best response to evil counsels is good ones, to hate speech is counter speech. But on Twitter, there's no time. Opinion crystallizes so fast that it hardens into a, a calcified ideology, which has no appeal. So the Constitution Center has the privilege, the ability, the great mission of creating platforms that give time for deliberation, like this podcast, you know, we're having a substantive argument, and it's going to take some time. And through our podcast, we have our weekly We the People podcast, which I'll plug and invite your listeners to tune into where we, I invite every week, leading liberal and conservative scholars to debate the constitutional issues in the news. And through live constitutional classes, which are taking place every week online, and through videos and blogs and so forth, as long as you can summon people's better angels and invite them, there's that other great Brandeis line, come let us reason together, inviting people to reason together and, and then giving them the tools to do that invariably results in the spreading of light. And all of the partisanship and the, the calcified ideology and, and the anger melts away in the, in the bright alloy of, of reason. I'm not being ameliorist here. It's just my experience that the, the debates are really good. So, so that's what we have to do, create platforms of reason so that light can prevail. I think one of the important things to, to get across to people is how 
how beneficial it can be to be offended because there, there's such a huge fear of being offended now. And I'm, uh, and I don't blame young people themselves for this. I think very often the problem is that they've been raised and socialized in a culture which has told them that offense is a, is a terrible thing and it can damage your self-esteem and make you feel bad and so on. But I think it's important to get across that being offended is good for you. And, you know, this is a point that liberals have been making for hundreds of years, which is, you know, it's the John Stuart Mill point again, which is really the only way you can be sure that you are right or that you are moving in the right direction in terms of your point of view or your opinion is by subjecting it to as thorough a public discussion as possible and to push back and criticism and possibly even ridicule. Whereas I think the danger of the safe space, this notion that we all should be force-fielded from disagreement and force-fielded from difficult points of view that counteract our own, is that it ends up making you dogmatic and you believe something not because you've tested it, but just because you know it's right. And that becomes a kind of almost religious experience. So would one of the things that you would be willing to communicate to your audiences, which is is to refuse to be afraid of feeling offended when something when you hear something that sounds challenging or confrontational? Absolutely. The idea that being offended is something to be indulged rather than to galvanize a counter-argument is one to resist. I wonder about offense and to what degree we should encourage it. Offense is an ego-based response. How dare you? You've hurt me. You've offended me. You've made me feel bad. The reason would require not offense, but disagreement. You've not persuaded me. You're wrong. I, I disagree with, I, I abhor, I repudiate your prejudice, your, your racism. I, I, I find it to be sinful or egregious and so forth. So it, maybe it's terminology or maybe it's a matter of uh, psychology, but I think if, if we're going to engage in the robust business of democracy. We, we have to meet hateful arguments with loving ones and uh, evil arguments with good ones. And it makes me wonder about the notion of virtue signaling, which is, I, I gather from the web, defined as uh, the sort of public expression of moral outrage to demonstrate your good character or the moral correctness of your position. And rather than virtue signaling, maybe virtue practicing. To practice virtue is to overcome our negative emotions like anger and jealousy and fear so that we can set aside our egos and serve others and reason and the public good. That's the Aristotelian notion. The Stoics all counsel us to be guided by reason, and that requires setting aside ego-based emotions. So perhaps it's a question of terminology or, or perhaps not, but certainly not shying from vigorous disagreement based on reason is, is a necessity of democracy. And wh- whether uh, outrage or some other form of engagement is the best way to do that is, is an interesting question. Just sticking for another moment with the question of freedom of speech and the internet, I wanted to ask you about the right to be forgotten, because this is something that you've written about I fear that it's something people haven't spoken about enough over the past few years, because it has been at times a very good example of how dystopian the culture of unfreedom on the internet can become. So the right to be forgotten, which became 
a phenomenon in the European Union and also in Argentina as well, I gather, empowering people to request the removal of news reports and other items about embarrassing things they may have done or, or even criminal things they may have done in the past, which they now think they've paid their dues for. Can you just describe to us why you think that was a particularly problematic exercise of unfreedom on the internet? Right to be forgotten was a remarkable example of dignitary values trumping free speech. And when the European Court of Justice first announced it, it put Google in the position of empowering its lawyers to decide whether any individual takedown request met a narrow category of exceptions. Was it in the public interest or did it have literary or scientific value? And if they guessed wrong and refused to take down a disputed item, then they were liable for something like several percent of their annual income in a fine, which was many millions of dollars. So as a result, Google took down 42% of the takedown requests that it received, including articles about the right to be forgotten itself. The notion of American lawyers making spot judgments under the face of ruinous financial penalties about whether or not a particular factually accurate item was still relevant is not something that any lawyer uh, or any judge should be put in the business of deciding. And it was resisted by the platforms when first announced. I'm sorry to report that I gather the platforms have made their peace with it because it's turned out to be not impossible to enforce. And of course, they do have to abide by the laws of whatever country they're operating in. And I imagine it will only expand. Just in relation to the compliance with the uh, the laws of the of the nations they're operating in, the reason I ask this is because you and I were both at a conference discussing issues like this a few years ago in relation to the role of Facebook, the role of Twitter, the role of social media more broadly in terms of controlling speech online. And you made a very interesting point, which is there's often a big fuss if a social media company complies with, for example, Saudi Arabia's distaste for blasphemous content or laws in Pakistan or laws in China. Of course, many social media companies cannot operate in China. And you made an interesting point, which is, well, you know, this raises a very complex political moral question, which is, are we really calling upon these largely American corporations to ignore the laws of the country that they operate in and to enforce a standard on freedom of speech that is democratically accepted in the United States, but might not be accepted in the nations in which they are working. I thought that was a very good point, but it's also a difficult one because it makes it look like these American companies are not simply complying with, but in some cases facilitating the punishment of people or the silencing of people for saying things that we here would consider to be perfectly legitimate and in some cases even good. What's your view on on how Facebook and Twitter and others should strike that balance between, I mean, things have moved on since we had that discussion and they're now much more happy to control speech even in the West, never mind overseas. But how do you think Facebook and others should con- should balance that discussion in relation to countries that have far fewer freedom of speech protections than the United States? Things have moved on. It almost seems like a different age, a different era. Yeah. I think in the, around that time, I was calling, you know, half jokingly for a kind of American free speech imperialism on, on behalf of yeah. the platforms <laughs> and saying that they should basically put their thumb on the scales of freedom when they had the legal ability to do that in the countries they 
operated in, and now all the pressures are on the other side. So uh, goodness knows what they should do, except that there are some circumstances where at least earlier in the century, Google and Facebook either pulled out or you know, were facing pressure to pull out of China, for example, because they just didn't feel that they could be complicit with the imprisonment of dissidents, even though it was legal under the laws of China. So there are certainly some places where it's not right for the companies to operate because they become complicit in forms of tyranny that are not acceptable to, to Western values. But if they are going to operate, again, the old model at the dawn of the internet era was when there was play in the joints, whenever they had discretion, they'd put their thumb on the finger of speech. I don't know that they're doing that anymore. So what should they do? At least do what they started doing. And and when there's some discretion to be pro-free speech and not to bow to consumer or government pressure. Continuing with the theme of dignity and the dangers of dignity, I suppose we could we could say, I think one of the best things you've written in recent years was your piece in The Atlantic on the dangers of a constitutional right to dignity. So this was in relation to the Supreme Court discussions and rulings on on same-sex marriage and, and the striking down of same-sex marriage bans. And much of that discussion in the Supreme Court and outside of the Supreme Court was premised on the notion of dignity and preserving an individual's dignity. And that does seem to represent an important shift in how the American Supreme Court and the American Constitution more broadly relates to the individual and to the public. So could you just describe to us why you think the focus on dignity in that argument was not necessarily the best way to approach the issue of same-sex marriage? Because it's not explicitly rooted in the U.S. Constitution. We saw in the case of Roe v. Wade the dangers of rooting fundamental constitutional rights based on amorphous principles that don't have firm rooting in text, history, and structure. The right to privacy in the case of Roe was a less firm foundation for the right to choose abortion than the right to equality, just as Ruth Bader Ginsburg powerfully argued that Roe should have been based on equality and not privacy, in particular the inequality of imposing burdens on women that are not imposed on men. And had the court embraced an equality argument, she believes, and I agree, that it might have been less constitutionally controversial. Similarly, for marriage equality, inequality rationale would have been a strong and powerful and deeply historically rooted basis for the right to marry whomever you love. And dignity, in some ways, was a distraction. Of course, restrictions on the right to marry whomever you love is an indignity and violates the dignity of LGBTQ people, no question about it. But because the U.S. Constitution doesn't protect dignity, rooting the right in equal protection of the laws would have been cleaner and I think more constitutionally sound. And do you think this this growing focus on dignity, or, or the not simply in the in the courts, but also in public discussion, do you think it speaks to a broader shift in how we understand? the relationship between society and the individual. So you've written before about how arguably the two most important amendments in the US are the Fourth Amendment, which protects one's home from unjust intrusions by the state or, you know, from our belongings being searched by the state without good reason and without good cause. And of course, the First Amendment, which protects the individual's right to freedom of religion, freedom of speech and freedom of the press without government intrusion. So 
there was a traditional understanding of the relationship between the society and the individual is individual autonomy being an important thing and society or the state rather having to occasionally being muzzled and restrained from overreaching in relation to the individual. Whereas now we seem to have entered a more therapeutic era where there is a belief that it is partly the role of society and possibly even the role of the state to validate the individual and to even celebrate the individual and to recognize his or her dignity, to recognize his or her identity, for example, in, in the transgender discussion, and to confer legitimacy on the individual, which seems to me to invite new forms of intrusion. So do you think part of the problem about the current climate we live in is that there has been a broader shift from a society, particularly in the American case, a society that valued the independence of individuals and communities to one in which there is a therapeutic urge to invite new forms of intrusion into our lives in order to validate our existences? I think I'll just stick to the constitutional question, <laughs> which is tough <laughs> enough. Both, both are important, but just beginning with that. And of course, now that I'm at the Constitution Center, I'm not allowed to have favorite amendments anymore, although I did right. that before. <laughs> in a previous life, I said the first and fourth were central. They're, they're, they're all pretty great. It's so interesting. The dignitary talk in the marriage equality decisions came from Justice Anthony Kennedy, who was no woke progressive by any means, but in some ways anticipated the direction of cultural talk in favor of dignity. And, and I thought that was constitutionally problematic for the reasons we just discussed. And there is no question that a focus on dignity has different constitutional as well as cultural implications than a focus on autonomy. It tends to be more group-based than individually based. And as, as you say, it does put an obligation on the part of the state to protect dignity as opposed to getting off people's backs and allowing them to operate autonomously. And it's difficult in the American tradition because we've had a constitutional conception based on negative, not positive li liberties, on, on freedom from, not freedom to. And regardless of the cultural or political arguments for a more classic Republican or dignitary-based notion of the state, we don't have a jurisprudence or a constitutional tradition that's well-equipped to accommodate it. So that's the reason that I was arguing for the classical conception. Okay. My final question for you is, in relation to American politics, now I know you can't be partisan given your role, but I think there is widespread agreement that American politics has become problematically partisan and very divided and in some cases quite toxic and people seem to fall quite easily and quite naturally into incredibly divided trenches and camps. I wonder if in your role as a constitutional expert or a constitutional cheerleader, I wonder if you can give some suggestions on how that toxicity might be drained from American politics, which I don't think necessarily means having a kind of unrealistic, happy, clappy consensus approach, but what can be done in relation to the work that you do in relation to the constitution itself? What do you think can be done to, to withdraw some of that tension from American politics and make American politics more reasoned again? Well, th thank you for the uh, Appalachian constitutional cheerleader. I like that. And I, I, I just try to try to be, but, but not a Panglossian one, as you, as you say, we don't need any sort of unrealistic happy talk. And, and, and this is 
Indeed, you can say in a completely nonpartisan way, it's the most polarized time since the end of the Civil War in American politics. It's a gravely serious situation where the parties are more apart than they have been since the late 19th century. So what can be done? There's much uh, that is discussed about how to end polarization, which is a tough order. There's important things that the platforms can try to do, although no clear silver bullets to reduce polarization online. My little corner of the world or our mission is to try to inspire people to learn about the Constitution. The framers of the Constitution thought that constitutional education was crucial for the survival of the Republic, that we all have a duty to cultivate our faculties of reason. And unless we exercise that and grow in wisdom and learning, then the Republic will collapse. And as it happens, it's a very inspiring and fulfilling thing to do to learn and grow. So there are all these amazing free online tools available. And it's so the greatest privilege of my life has been part of this team that's created this interactive constitution. So just a mind blowing learning resource that I learn from every day and all of your listeners can too. So let's start with ourselves and let's try to spend each moment of the day learning and growing rather than surfing and tweeting. And let's cultivate our faculties of reason, of empathy, of, of knowledge so that we can deliberate and be guided by reason in our interactions with others. It's much easier said than done. And it's, it's really almost a matter of personal self-discipline as much as anything else. Of course, every moment of the day, I'm tempted to surf or browse rather than learn or engage. But when you force yourself to tune in and to get back to work, it's, it's a spiritually as well as constitutionally elevating task. It's what, it's what Aristotle said is the purpose of man and woman is, which is to achieve our own path, our own excellence through the virtue of cultivating our faculties of reason. And it's a great thing to do. So let's all try to do it. Jeffrey Rosen, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.